Daniel chapter 7. If you'll turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 7, which chapter 7 starts the second half of the book of Daniel, which is prophetic. And over the last several weeks, the last few weeks, we have been in chapter 7 traveling through this incredible chapter that Daniel, he receives in the first year of Belshazzar, who is the king of Babylon. Daniel at this time has been in captivity for 50 years, and he has served the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, faithfully without waiver or compromise. When Nebuchadnezzar dies, we know that his grandson eventually would be on the throne. And uh, if we can get one of the ushers, we might need a little help over there on the left-hand side. So if you guys need some help, okay? Is, if it, anybody's a nurse or anything, if you can help. Okay, thank, thank you, Dr. Joy. If you can just give us a few minutes. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you just take care of this young boy and the Lord just minister to him. I thank you for Joy being here. And, and um, Lord, we just want to, he's the priority right now. And so, Lord, we just give you this time and, um, for healing and touching. In Jesus' name. Amen. They're going to kind of take care of him, and we're just going to move forward, but as long as we can do that. Thank you, Dr. Joy. But Daniel has been in captivity, and remember that as we read about Belshazzar, as he came on the throne after Nebuchadnezzar dies, the kingdom begins to decline in power. And we read about Belshazzar in the record of Babylon falling to the Medes and Persians in chapter 5. And in the first year of his reign is when I said that Daniel has this uh, vision. He has a dream, and he wrote it down, and it is recorded in God's Word for us to learn from. And as we have been going through it over the last three weeks, we have uh, seen that Daniel is describing to us, and keep in mind that this dream, this vision comes from God. It isn't just some weird vision that he had, uh, like we can have, um, you know, uh, at times just weird dreams, and this dream comes from the Lord. And this dream here, he saw four great beasts come out of the sea, each different from the other. And we have seen that Daniel describes these beasts as we liken them to Gentile kingdoms. Some believe it correlates with the kingdoms that were spoken of there in Daniel chapter 2, leading up to this future revived Roman Empire in the last days. Others see it as contemporaries that are actually in the last days, standing before the fourth beast that is spoken of, that we're going to read about once again as we finish the chapter. So also in the vision is the Ancient of Days. In, in the vision is the one on the throne and the one like the Son of Man that is going to come in the clouds as he's going to establish his kingdom and his dominion is an everlasting dominion and he will respect that, uh, repeat that, that is at the end of the chapter. So let's pick it up at verse 15 to the end where here is Daniel going to receive the interpretation of the vision. So in verse 15, we do read, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head 
troubled me. So this dream that Daniel has very much troubled him. Uh, perhaps I think that all of us, uh, we've had a dream that has happened before that uh, it just troubled us. When we woke up, it troubled us during the day or the next few days. And Daniel knows that this vision, this dream, as I mentioned to you, has come from the Lord. And he's grieved in his spirit and within his body in the Aramaic remember that chapter 7 it was written in Aramaic and then in chapter 8 it goes back to Hebrew uh, that the original book was written in but in the Aramaic it literally is translated in the midst of its sheath Uh, a sheath of course is what holds a dagger or a, a sword and so it pierced him it troubled him in his spirit it pierced his spirit And Daniel is grieved because of what he saw. And and I believe so because much of what he's seen and what we're going to read about is yet future. And it pertains to his people, to the nation of Israel, to his holy city as we continue to look at these prophecies. And also he has a lack of understanding. Now what intrigues me is that Daniel wasn't troubled in that way that we give any indication of that when we are in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to kill all the wise men of Babylon including Daniel. He wasn't troubled in that way in chapter 6 when he was cast into the den of lions. But as we continue now in verse 16 of the chapter that I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things and those great beasts which are four or four kings which arise out of the earth but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever so who is the one uh, who stood by it doesn't tell us specifically but many believe that it is an angel And some have suggested that this is Gabriel. Now, when we get to chapter 8 and chapter 9, Gabriel uh, is going to be mentioned specifically as speaking to Daniel about the visions that he has in those chapters. And also we know that Gabriel is mentioned in the New Testament in the announcement to to Zacharias concerning the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. Also in Luke chapter 1 to Mary, as she was told that you're going to give birth to the Messiah. So Gabriel seems to be associated with messages of the coming of the Messiah. Since this chapter deals with his second coming, it could be Gabriel, but we don't know for sure. But whoever this one is, will give the interpretation. And as we read in verse 17, these great beasts are, we are told, four kings that will arise out of the earth. Now remember that when Daniel saw these beasts arise out of the great sea, they're not sea creatures, but um, they represent Gentile kingdoms and nations on the scene. And the scripture seems to give that interpretation to us For example, in Isaiah chapter 17, Woe to the multitude of many nations who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations. In Revelation chapter 13, the beast, which is a title of the Antichrist, as well as, as we have seen here in this chapter, little horn. Uh, The Antichrist called the little horn. John the Revelator saw the beast rising out of the sea. And in that chapter, he writes how the world will worship the beast. So I think that these beasts here, personally, I lean towards that they are contemporary. These four beasts 
will be present in the tribulation period. The first three beasts stand before the fourth beast. It seems like the language indicates that to us and, and really demands that. And as we learn about these four beasts, we know they're four kings, as we're told. But the saints of the Most High, these are the ones that shall receive the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God. And that, that's you and me that are believers. We know from the New Testament that we are called saints. Now, maybe you grew up in a church or in a, a system where a, a saint was somebody who had died hundreds of years ago and did so many good works and miracles or whatever the case may be. So over a process of time, they were canonized and they became saints. Well, that's not the biblical definition of a saint. The biblical definition of a saint is one who is a believer. Paul writing to the churches in his epistles, that he would write to the saints that are at Corinth, the saints at Ephesus and Philippi and so forth. So if you are a believer in Christ, by definition, you are a saint. And you belong to the kingdom that will last forever. And then in verse 19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with his teeth of iron and his nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with his feet. So Daniel has this special interest. He, he's really focused on the fourth beast that is described as exceedingly dreadful and devoured. He doesn't tell us what kind of beast it is, but this beast devours the whole earth, tramples and breaks in pieces. So the fourth beast here is going to be the focus of the vision and the interpretation of the vision. And the one who is called, as I mentioned, little horn, let's continue reading verse 20, and the ten horns that were on its head, that is the fourth beast here, and the other horn which came up, remember that verse 8 of the chapter, Daniel called it the little horn coming up in the midst of the ten horns before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So we have identified this little horn as the future leader that is called the Antichrist. He arises out of the ten horns of this fourth beast. So we know that this future new Roman Empire or revived Roman Empire is going to be present in the tribulation period. Now, many of you, you're familiar with these terms, tribulation periods, the day of the Lord, the millennium reign, the coming of Christ, the timeline that is laid out before us. If you are new to end time prophecy, as we go through Daniel, we're going to put all of it together to where you're going to have a good understanding of it. But when we get to Dan Daniel chapter 9, we know that the last seven years prior to Jesus coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom, which is being spoken of in this chapter, it is called the tribulation period. It is called Daniel's 70th week. And that period begins what the term that you read about in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord that you read about also in the New Testament begins with the tribulation period, seven years and then the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he will establish his kingdom, the millennium reign for a thousand years. That's all the day of the Lord. And we know that the tribulation period begins not with the rapture of the church. Okay, keep that straight. 
The rapture of the church will be before the tribulation period. The tribulation period, very clearly from the scriptures, from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, begins when the Antichrist, this little horn of chapter 7 here, comes on the scene and he makes a covenant with Israel for one week. A week is seven years. We know from the book of Revelation, from chapter 6 through 19, speak of that seven-year period, the tribulation period. And we know that it gives us details of the things that take place during that time. It begins in chapter 6, verse 2, with the rider on the white horse that comes on the scene. He's conquering and the conquer. That is the Antichrist. So that marks the beginning of the tribulation period. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that I, I believe it's important for us to understand that that which restrains will continue to do so till he is removed out of the way. I believe it's speaking of the church, that we are a restraining factor that we will continue to restrain. We got a greater influence in this world than sometimes we realize through being light and giving truth and through our prayers. We are a restraining factor from the Antichrist coming on the scene. And when we are removed, the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, that that's when the Antichrist, the lawless one, Paul writes in that chapter, that will come on the scene. And he will come on the scene and lawlessness will begin to take over the world. So the tribulation period begins at that time. And as we know that we are being told that he will be a world leader, such as the world has never seen or have embraced in the history of mankind, except with the exclusion of Jesus, of course. He is given 33 titles in the Old Testament. He's given 13 titles in the New Testament. John is the one in his epistle that calls him specifically the Antichrist. Now, when we read that term Antichrist, John says that there are many Antichrists that are on the scene, but the coming Antichrist will come on the scene in the future. And it takes on the meaning, Antichrist, of not just against Christ, but one that comes in a counterfeit likeness of Christ. And chapter 7 through 11 here of Daniel's prophecies tell us a whole lot about this Antichrist that is yet future. So the very first thing that we note here from verse 20 is, is that he takes control of the ten horns before which three fell. He spoke pompous words that is repeated in the chapter. So the Antichrist will be a great orator. He seems to have the answers. Uh, we know that the world is looking for a leader to have the answers to the problems, economic problems, the political problems, uh, the uh, environmental problems and challenges that you hear so much about today. He's going to come on, and to the world he's going to speak great things. But he speaks blasphemous things against the, the, the true God and the God of heaven. His appearance is greater than his fellows. Let's continue reading in verse 21. And I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So we are told here that this little horn, this Antichrist, will make war against the saints and prevail against them. In Revelation chapter 13, that we are told that the Antichrist will make war with the saints and overcome them. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm confused. There is, isn't this a contradiction? Because Matthew chapter 16, 
when the disciples were with Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And they said that, uh, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Peter spoke up, and most of you know the text. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you are now going to be called Little Stone, and upon the rock of your confession I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here it says that the Antichrist is going to prevail against the saints. But as we look at that word saints, we know in the Old Testament, there's over 30 references to that word saints. Now, some of those references deal with us coming back with Jesus Christ, like in Zechariah chapter 1. But also it mentions saints, and it's a reference to the Old Testament believers. In Solomon's prayer of the temple, the dedication of the temple, as Solomon, we made reference to it in chapter 6. We'll make reference to chapter 9. That Daniel would set his face towards Jerusalem to pray. And the reason that he did is because in that dedication of prayer, that Solomon prayed, if, if we rebel against you and we're taken out of the land, that if we pray towards this place, you will hear from heaven. And the prayer also would include, as you read in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 41, that Solomon would pray, Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in goodness. Psalm chapter 30, verse 4, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints, and of his, and give thanks thanks that the remembrance of his holy name and see that's at the dedication of the house of David sing praise to you, all you saints so the Old Testament believers were referenced to saints we know that the church has referenced the believers to saints but keep in mind that during the tribulation period the church is taking out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell in the earth you read in chapter 7, the ministry of the 144,000 that are going to be like 144,000 evangelists. Can you imagine 144,000 Billy Grahams or Greg Lorries that are going around the world evangelizing? And out of that, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there are believers. They're called the tribulation saints, those who become believers in the tribulation period. We also know that there is the witness of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 in the first half of the tribulation period, and then also in Revelation chapter 14, the proclamation of the three angels. One of the proclamations is the everlasting gospel that will pre be preached to everyone. Second, Babylon is going to fall. Thirdly, if you take the mark of the beast, there's no hope of salvation. It's a really intense chapter as you read that chapter. As the Antichrist speaks pompous words, he speaks against the Most High God. We know that he will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the middle of the tribulation period. Daniel chapter 9 will speak of that. He will proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. And anyone who does not make their allegiance to him, who does not worship him, then they are going to be persecuted, and that includes the tribulation saints. And then, of course, at the end of the tribulation and, and during that time, that all of Israel will be saved, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11. There's going to be a national restoration during that time. So 
when Jesus Christ comes back, does away with the Antichrist, the Ancient of Days come and judges the little horn, the beast, the saints will then possess the kingdom, that is the kingdom of God. And this angelic being in verse 23 gives Daniel further information. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, and then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half time. The fourth beast, listen, we're told is going to devour the whole earth. I've heard teachings before that, oh, the Antichrist is not going to be a world leader. He's going to be a world leader. We know from Revelation chapter 13 tells us very specifically that authority was given to the beast over every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. All the world marveled and followed the beast. And we are told that the ten horns here, the fourth beast, listen, are ten kings. And I believe that they correlate with the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. The feet of iron mingled with clay and the ten toes that we are told in Daniel chapter 2 are kings, ten kings, that will be in existence in the day that God of heaven comes, uh, the God of heaven and sets up his kingdom. So these are last day kings, these ten kings. Now, there's been different thoughts and theories. And one of the thoughts is, well, maybe the world's going to be divided up into ten regions. And these are the ten kings of that region. I think Daniel makes it pretty clear and makes it specific that this revived Roman Empire that is going to have ten kings that will come on the scene. Because the fourth beast had what? Four uh, had ten horns, and then in the midst of it came the little horn that subdued three of the kings, and he's going to be a world leader. And in verse 25, once again, it's repeated that he speaks pompous words, this little horn, um, and he speaks against the Most High God. The word pompous is translated great things. Uh, the world will consider it great things. Uh, the Antichrist will want to be worshipped as God. He will destroy a false church that will come on the scene, Revelation chapter 17. You see, in the first half of the tribulation period, there's going to be a worldwide false church. And it's the woman riding the beast. And then the beast turns and destroys that woman because he alone, the Antichrist, is, wants to be worshipped. Uh, it's something that we know Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. Isaiah 14, Lucifer fell. He wanted to sit on the throne to exalt himself as God. In the temptation of Jesus, worship me, Satan said, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. So he's always wanted to be worshipped. And the Antichrist, who is under the direct power and influence of Satan, the dragon, will be able to do great signs and wonders. And if you are a follower of Jesus, it is very likely that you could, you're going to get killed by him. If you do not take his mark, that is those tribulation saints. So this Antichrist intends to change the times and the laws. So what does that mean? Uh, not sure, but perhaps change the calendar. Holidays, no religious holidays, no Christmas, no resurrection weekend, no Yom Kippur, not even Ramadan. Nothing that will give observance to any other religion or God.
and especially the true and the living God. And then verse 25 tells us that it's going to continue for a time, times, and a half time. That's three and a half years. Time is one year, times is two years, a half time, a half a year. And that period, the second half of the tribulation, is called the great tribulation period, or what we're going to read in Daniel chapter 12, Jacob's Trouble. And it will be tribulation such as the world has not seen. And we will learn when that begins again in Daniel chapter 9. And it begins, as many of you know, the abomination of desolation as we put all of this scenario together and uh, as the sacrifices will cease and then he will go into the temple to proclaim himself as God. It's a very distinct mark in the tribulation period. There's not a temple in Jerusalem today, but they are preparing for it. And he will then set up an image of himself and command the world to worship him. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet, then it will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. Keep in mind that the day of the Lord, that is the tribulation period in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, is the most documented period of time that is given to us in the Bible. And it will lead to... That, that final week, that final seven years before the second coming of Jesus Christ to that last world war called the Battle of Armageddon there in the Valley of Megiddo in northern Israel. Some of you, we've stood together in that valley overlooking it. Very sobering to, to see that this is where it's all going to end. This is where it's all going to end in this valley. And as we read verse 26... But the court shall be seated, and it shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So the Antichrist's reign is going to come to an end. And the kingdom of God will be established, for it is an everlasting kingdom. And we will serve with him, and we shall rule with him. And in verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept a manner in my heart. So Daniel here, receiving this vision, it really troubled him. He was so overwhelmed by it. Sometimes people will tell me, particularly if they're new to end-time prophecy, that it, it, it's so heavy, it, it troubles me. And, and I understand it because it is heavy things. I believe that's one of the reasons why Christians and churches don't teach on prophecy. They avoid it. But it is given to us in God's word to benefit us. And I want to remind us that the Bible speaks of that blessed hope of the church being taken out of. It is a promise that is given to us, the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, that he promises he'll take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that will come upon the earth to test those who dwell on the earth. The Lord did not say that he will take us through the hour of tribulation. He will take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation. So what does it mean for us? I mean, as we find ourselves looking at the things going on around us, the birth pangs, lawlessness that is abounding, the nations are going to be you know, experiencing you know, perplexity that, uh, of nations with you know, problems that they don't know how to solve. We know that the birth pangs are pandemic 
epidemics that are going to happen. That nation against nation. The love of many will grow cold. There's going to be a suppression of truth. And we see the birth pangs that are all around us. And what does it mean for us today? Well, it means for us today that we should be praying more than ever. To keep our eyes on the Lord because he said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, rejoice for your redemption draws near. For us to say, Lord, help me to live for you, to not live for this world because we are rushing towards eternity and because we're being told repeatedly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Some of the last words of Peter in Second Peter chapter 3. And even as Paul would write in Romans chapter 13, let me read it to you. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The commandment that is given to you and to me because knowing that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That what we are to do is put on Christ. Fathers, take care of your families. May your home be a sanctuary. May your home be a place of peace where truth is spoken. For all of us, if there's anything that is in our lives, we are to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it. Anything that is causing us to stumble to sin, get rid of it. We have freedom in Christ. We identify with Christ. And I know that it is a struggle because it's all around us, bombarding us constantly and continually. But live for Him. No more excuses. No more, well, you know, I just, I don't have time to pray for my kids. I'm just going to, kind of continue having these things in my home or in my life that cause me to stumble and sin. Get rid of it. Live for Christ. You have Christ living in your heart and ask for God's help to help us be the men and women that he's called us to be. The fathers, the mothers, the husbands, the wives, whatever state that you're in. Put on light. He's brought us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And we belong to a kingdom that lasts forever. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you. That even though we read these things, and it can be a lot, but there's a message that is there that is your kingdom's going to be established. And we have a promise that you're going to come for us. You're going to come for us even if our lives end because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us, or you come for the church. But Lord, I just pray for anyone who is here that you've never made a commitment to Christ. You're not right with God. Get right with Him before you leave. 
Salvation comes by faith alone, Christ alone. And you come to him confessing that you are a sinner that needs forgiveness and give your life to him and call out to him. Believing that Jesus rose from the grave, made atonement for your sins, coming in in faith, sincerely in your heart, calling out to him right now, that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me, a sinner. Forgive me. And I ask that you be my Lord and Savior. You rose from the grave. You are Lord. And I believe that your kingdom will be established. I want to be a part of that kingdom. Be my Lord and Savior. And I want to walk with you and walk in the light, no longer in the darkness. I thank you for bringing me into a kingdom and a family that will be established forever in a new beginning. In Jesus' name. And for all of us, listen, if you're here and you're really struggling, maybe there's an attitude or a sin or an addiction or something, Jesus wants to free you. He, he says, repent from it. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you to give you the power to live a life for him. You identify with Christ. Call out to him right now. He loves you. He wants to work in your life. You are his child. But no more excuses, no more just being apathetic. No more having those things in your life and in your home, whatever it might be, that's causing you to stumble and sin. To say, Lord, now's high time to wake out of sleep because my salvation is nearer than before. I want to put on you and live for you. I've been brought out of the darkness into the light. Lord, help me. Lord, help me right now to be free from that sin, to repent from that sin, to be the person of God you want me to be, to live in freedom, to identify with you, to reckon myself over to righteousness, to walk in the Spirit. Help me, Lord. And I pray for all of us we would leave this place rejoicing because we are established in truth, not in deception of the world and the weirdness of the world, but in your truth and love. Bless everyone here this morning. Bless all the fathers. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. The Lord is good, isn't he?